As you're being seated, if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, as we continue our series that we've been calling the Red Letters, uh, where we look at some of the most famous and often some of the most difficult teachings of Jesus. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could live in a world where everybody thought exactly like you, and everybody got along, and everybody acted responsibly like you always do, right? Wouldn't it be great? Uh, Wouldn't it be great if uh, we could live in a world that was disease-free, problem-free, a world where there were no traffic jams, a world where Apple Maps would actually get you to your destination? Well, there is such a world, and it's called heaven. The problem, though, is that you're not there yet. Uh, We still live in this world, and in this world, people are fouled up, they're messed up, and they're fed up. And we live in a world that is often full of conflict. We have conflict at home, where we yell and argue with the people that we love the most. We have conflict at work, where you have to deal with the insecurities and the bad habits of your coworkers. We have conflict in our neighborhoods where we lock our cars, lock our doors, lock up our Wi-Fi, lock up our phones because we're constantly worried about people coming and taking our stuff. We have conflict in our world. We see Donald and Hillary battling for the White House and insulting one another over and over again, and we see conflict emerging all around the world around us. There's only one perfect person who has ever lived. Who's that person? You guys are Bible scholars. Jesus was constantly dealing with conflict. Jesus lived during the height of the Roman Empire. Now, if you know much about Rome, their army would come into your area. They would physically conquer you. Then they would take what they wanted, and they might take who they wanted. They would allow you to have your life, and they would allow you to have some semblance of freedom, but in exchange for that, you would fund the empire by giving large amounts of taxes. This was the dark world that Jesus was born into. On top of that, in his ministry, he had the Pharisees and their minions that were continually plotting his death and his demise. Within his inner twelve, he had Judas stealing from the money bag. Sometimes we think that Judas was a good guy until the very end. No, if you read the story carefully, all throughout the story, Judas, the man who was the treasurer of the disciples' uh, money, was also stealing from the disciples. And then he has Simon Peter, We love Simon Peter, a boisterous personality, no telling what kind of crazy tweets Simon Peter was putting out all hours of the night, and Jesus was constantly having to corral him and to keep him under control. So understand this, if Jesus had to deal with conflict, you will too. Well, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 27, we have some of Jesus' most familiar teachings. Now, I will say that this section of Scripture that I'm covering today could be a sermon series in and of itself. I could probably preach here for two or three months, 
but eventually we want to get through Luke chapter 6. So I'm going to paint with broad brushstrokes today and talk to you a little bit about how do you engage the enemies in your life. In verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Now, let me ask you this question. What is your engagement style when it comes to taking on your enemies? Everybody in this room has a natural conflict style, a natural way in which you engage the enemy. Some of us in here are tanks. If someone does you wrong, if you find yourself in conflict, then that person better watch out. Because you're going to hit the engines full throttle and you're going to do everything in your power to run over them. And you're going to take no prisoners. And if they try to hit you, you're going to hit them right in the mouth. And you better know that they're going to feel you whenever you hit them. That's your natural conflict style to be a tank. Some of us in this room, we're snipers. Whenever we have an enemy, we like to kind of hide in the distance. We like to hit them from afar. They may not even know what hit them. They probably don't know where it came from, but we just like to snipe and hit them from a distance. Perhaps, if you really break it down, your natural conflict style is what might be called passive-aggressive. There are some people in the room that when it comes to engaging the enemy, you're a supplier. You like to nurture conflict. You like to make sure that fights have everything that they need to continue And so if they need gossip, you'll give them a little gossip. If they need blame, you'll throw some blame at them. If they need denial or enablement, you'll go out of your way to nurture conflict, nurture that fight, and make sure it has everything that it needs to keep on going. Some in the rooms are diplomats. You don't want to fight. You just want to talk. And so when you find yourself in a conflict, the first thing you do is you say, let's talk about that. Well, that's not a bad thing because Jesus did teach us to settle matters quickly while on the way. And so often, if we'll just deal with conflict and talk about it, we can settle it before it gets any, any worse. Jesus also taught us in Matthew 18 that whenever we have a problem with someone within the church, instead of talking about them, we talk to them. We try to reconcile and clear the air and talk to the person. But some of us, that's our natural style. And so we we try to compromise and we'll give up some stuff and the other person will give up some stuff and eventually we'll reach a solution that nobody likes and we'll move on. Some people in the room are white flag wavers. Whenever you find yourself in conflict, your initial slogan, slogan is retreat, retreat, run, run for the hills because Your goal, whenever you're facing conflict, is to avoid it at all cost. Now, if we were to really pull back the curtain, probably the most used conflict technique in this room is avoidance. Try to avoid conflict. Now, that's not altogether bad because there's that old saying, don't sweat the what? Small stuff. And there's a lot of things in life that... It's not really worth having a two-hour conversation over, and there's a lot of things in life that you don't have to engage. You can just kind of let it go and, and move on. But if you continually 
avoid all conflict and all challenges in life, eventually you will carry the ulcers and you will carry the scars of your conflict style. So in Luke chapter 6, Jesus teaches us some basic principles about how to engage the enemy in a godly manner. And the first thing that he teaches us is to keep a healthy perspective. Now, we looked at these verses last week here in verse 22 and 23, but Jesus says, you are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Now, look at the reaction that he suggests. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. And we discussed how uh, Jesus teaches us, instead of festering conflict, instead of uh, blaming other people, instead of getting upset, that whenever we find ourselves being insulted and excluded and slandered because of our faith in Christ, that we should leap for joy. In fact, we even got out of our comfort zones last week, and I encouraged you to leap for joy. And, uh, and now I know your theological blood type, because whenever I said leap for joy, some of you, you got up on your feet and you leaped for joy and you made a goalpost. That means that you have charismatic blood type within you. Some of you, whenever we leapt for joy, you just kind of went, woo, you're probably a Baptist. And, and then some of you, you just sat there and did nothing, and you're like, I'll leap for joy when the Holy Spirit tells me to. Uh, you're a Presbyterian, okay? So we kind of know your, your theological blood type now. Well, when I first entered ministry, I thought that if I were just nice to people and I tried to be Christ-like in my dealings, that everybody would like me. And I discovered it doesn't really work that way. In fact, there are some people that will not like you for no other reason at all, but you love Jesus, that you try to do the right thing, that you try to walk in wisdom, and people will dislike you for that. Jesus says, rejoice and leap for joy because you're in good company. Elijah had to run for his life because he was being chased by the evil queen Jezebel. Jeremiah was persecuted so much that he was called the weeping prophet. Daniel, thrown into a lion's den because he would not bow down to the politics of his day. Zechariah stoned to death. John the Baptist beheaded because he stood up for that which was morally right. On this earth, you will always have problems because our planet is saturated by this problem that we call sin. But what we must do as Christians is we must keep a perspective because this world is not our home. Heaven is our home. Realize this, heaven is not a doctrine that we make up in order for us to deal with death. Jesus speaks over and over and over again about the kingdom of heaven. The scriptures teach us that there is a real place called heaven. The most familiar of all verses says that God grants eternal life to those who believe in Jesus. Eternal life where? Eternal life in heaven. Your life here is but a vapor. You are ultimately, as a believer in Christ, a citizen of heaven. And so what we have to do is we have to look beyond 
the circumstances of life. You say, Lash, that's very difficult because right now the circumstances seem overwhelming. I get it. I understand. So perhaps we need God's power to help us to look beyond the circumstances of life to give us an eternal perspective to realize that our ultimate home is not here, but our ultimate home is heaven. And whenever you begin to see eternal hope, to have a hope that goes beyond what I call the hundred-year window in which we live life, when you have that eternal hope, it radically frees you to live life here because you understand who you are, whose you are, where you're going. And your life has a radical freedom that other people just don't completely understand. Jesus gives us another principle. If we're to engage the enemy in a godly manner, we have to learn to love our enemy. Jesus says flat out, love your enemies. That's hard for me. Loving your enemy does not mean that you approve of all the terrible things that people do. Loving your enemy does not mean that there's no such thing as right and wrong. It doesn't mean that you become everybody's personal doormat. Loving your enemy does not mean that you can't have healthy boundaries in your life. Everyone can't be your best friend. Loving your enemy does mean, though, that you believe people matter to God. That in the beginning, He created us. He created us male and female. And He created us in the image of God. That every single person on planet Earth has a spirit. A spirit that God has placed within them. A spirit that we desire to come alive in the gospel. People matter to God. They have an intrinsic divine value that comes from the Heavenly Father. And because people matter to God, they should matter to you. Loving your enemy does mean that you ultimately desire God's blessings to be on others. In verse 27, Jesus says, Love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. As Christians, we believe people matter to God. They matter to God so much so that driven by His love, He sends His Son. His Son lives a life that you and I cannot live. His Son dies on the cross, making atonement for my sin, for your sin, for everyone's sin. His Son overcomes death and brings salvation to anyone who believes. The grace of God is available to all people. Jesus died for all. And anyone who believes in Christ experiences the forgiveness of sin that only comes from Christ because people are made in the image of God, because God out of His love sent His Son, because His Son died on the cross for your sins and mine. We as Christians have this basic understanding that people matter to God. Now, have you ever tried to change somebody? You ever tried to change somebody? How'd that go? <laughs> it doesn't work too well. You and I don't have the ability to change people, but God can change anyone. Don't lose thought of that. I, I get tired sometimes of this uh, kind of psychological conclusion that says, well, they've just, they're in this track and that's just who they're going to be. No, 
At the heart of our theology is the belief that God can change anyone. And so as Christians, we love our enemies by desiring God's best for their lives. We demonstrate God's love by doing good even to those that hate us. And we pray for God to change the heart of those that live in darkness. And we believe that God can change anyone through His grace and through His love. A third principle. As you engage the enemy, learn to be a giving, generous person. Look at verse 29. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you, and from one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Most conflict, if you dig down, they have some common roots. The conflicts in our life are usually rooted in pride and selfishness. We want what we want. We want to protect what we have. We want to protect our rights. And so we find ourselves fighting and arguing and in conflict, trying to protect our wants at all cost. Now, Jesus is not telling us that we need to go to Kroger today and hold up our car keys and say, hey, anybody want my car? Here it is. Go for it. Now, some of you would like to give away your car, I understand, but, but that's not what Jesus is telling us. Uh, he's not telling us that, that you just have to give away all your possessions and that they don't belong. I mean, you, you, I mean, there's some common sense here. Jesus is teaching us, though, that you and I are to be giving people. We are to be generous people. And I know that this is a generous crowd because we experience it as a church. I am so thankful for your generosity that allows this church to exist, that allows this church to minister here in this community that provides for me and my family, this church whose generosity allows us to do mission work around uh, our community and around the world. Jesus teaches us as Christians we need to be giving people. And a giving, generous person understands that everything that I have ultimately comes from God, and God gives it to me to use for His glory. There's a wonderful verse in Romans chapter 11 and verse 36 where the Bible says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, until you understand the source of your blessings, you're always going to struggle with stuff. You're always going to find yourself shackled to things until you understand that the blessings that you have in your life ultimately come from God through Him and they are to Him. That everything that you have, all the blessings you've received, they are opportunities to bring glory to the name of the Lord. And so a giving person understands that ultimately in life, things don't matter nearly as much as people. People are what really matter to God. People are what really matters in life because it is the people in life that have souls. It is the people in life that will live forever. Things will fade. This week in my neighborhood, a 7-Eleven opened up. Now, whenever I see a 7-Eleven, 
I don't see a convenience store, and I don't see a gas station. When I see a 7-Eleven, I see Slurpees. Are you all with me on that? You know, praise God for Slurpees. And I, I grew up with Slurpees, so I love those things. And uh, my daughters, it was, I was going to pick them up from school on Friday, and they said, hey, Dad, can we go by and get a Slurpee on the way home from school? I said, well, absolutely. I didn't even have to pray about it. You know, <laughs> I said, we can, we can get a Slurpee. So I pick them up, we're headed back, and, and we go in and we get, their Slurpee, we, get, we get our Slurpees, and it's free small Slurpee day. You know, so uh, we're navigating the crowd, and I have, I have uh, the two girls get theirs, and I have one for Bennett, and I have one for me, and I have one for my wife, and, and we're going out the door, and I'm like, please, please be careful getting in and out of the car. You know, McKenna got green apple, and I'm thinking that's going to just destroy my car right there. So we get in the car, we drive home, we get out of the car. I'm like, please, please, just be careful. They're getting out of the car. You see where this is going, right? Uh, McKenna, ball of energy, little redheaded six-year-old that I, seven-year-old now, seven-year-old that I have, she's running into the house, and she trips and falls, and the Slurpee falls on the driveway. My first reaction was to say, I told you so. That was my first, I'm sorry, I, that was my first, I told you to be careful, but before I could really get too far into that sentence, it's like the Holy Spirit hit me <laughs> and said, guess what? Your little girl's a lot more important than that Slurpee. And so she's sitting there crying. And we had a moment where we could have had a conflict. I could have said, I told you to be careful. And she could have said, I was very careful. But, but instead, we had, we had a sweet moment where I hugged her and said, I'm sorry that happened and gave her my Slurpee. And so she was happy. If anybody wants to give me a Slurpee after service, you can to, to make up for it. But a, a giving person understands that you know, you, you can't take that stuff with you. You can't take it with you. Things don't matter nearly as much as people. Well, there's a fourth principle, and that is do the right thing. If you look at verse 33, Jesus says, If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. There's a statement that I have, and that is, just do what is right in the eyes of God, and everything will be okay. Just do what is right in the eyes of God, and everything will be okay. Now, that doesn't mean that it'll be fair. That doesn't mean that you won't get fired, that people won't insult you or throw your reputation into the mud. But you do what is right in the eyes of God, and everything will be okay. Doesn't mean everybody's going to like you. It doesn't mean that you'll never get sick or that you'll be wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. But if you do what is right in the eyes of God, the Heavenly Father will take care of you. And whenever you do the right thing, even in the face of adversity, then you can pillow your head at night and receive one of the greatest blessings that humankind can experience, the blessing of a clean conscience. Just do what's right in the eyes of God in every situation that you face, and it'll be okay. Lately, it seems as though I've been preaching a lot of funerals. Uh, I don't enjoy funerals. I don't know anybody that really says, hey, I just love to go to funerals. But I, I do learn from funerals. It seems like every time that I, I preach a funeral, it, it centers me 
And whether I knew the person or not, I learned from them. I, I try to take lessons from their life and employ them in my own life. And I've discovered that when you die, the fights you won don't seem very important anymore. When you die, the stuff that you collected, it's not very important anymore. If you live your life fighting over stuff, then chances are whenever you die, the people in your life will be fighting over your stuff. At the end of life, it's the good that you've done. That's what people take with them. It's your character that they remember. The investments of time, the investments of wisdom, whenever they stand right here and give eulogies about their loved ones, over and over and over again, they talk about time spent together, wisdom gleaned, lessons of character that they take from their loved one's life. Our bodies will eventually grow weak. We will all eventually die, but your character, good or bad, that lives on for generations. If you invest bad character into your family and into your world, guess what? You can live a legacy that outlives you, and generations from now, they'll still be shackled to those chains of bad behavior that you injected into the family through your poor character. If you invest godly character, it outlives you. It's invested in the people that you love, and they take that with them. So let me ask you a question. Who are the enemies in your life right now? Who are the enemies? It's that guy at work. It's that guy, I can't stand that guy. You'll probably struggle to remember his name in 15 years. You say, oh, I'll remember his name in 15 years. I promise you that. No, some of you 15 years from now, you won't remember anybody's name. Oh, where am I? Is that Pastor Mark? Maybe it's that insurance company's adjuster. He's your enemy. Nah, he's just a stranger. And I know right now it seems huge, but ultimately his role in your life is temporary. It's the people who don't vote like you. They're your enemy. No. They're your countrymen. It's your son, your daughter. My enemy is my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister. They're not your enemy. They're your family. You see, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And often we identify the wrong enemies wrong enemy is not your family. It's not your loved ones. It's not the people around you. The enemy is evil. The enemy is the evil one. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, be serious, be alert, because your adversary, your devil, here's your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's lurking in the weeds of your life. He's waiting in the darkness of your world. And He's looking, the Bible says, for anyone He can devour. He's looking for you in that weak moment. He's looking for your life so that He can roar and paralyze you in fear and then devour you. That's your enemy. 
And the devil's greatest joy is found whenever he can cause you to be stopped because his roar has paralyzed you with fear. His joy is found whenever his lies devour your potential. And you don't become the person that God has designed you to be because you fall for the devil's lies. His joy is found whenever he can feast on the remnants of your dead soul. And you're alive and breathing, but your life is over because you're just a hollowed out victim of evil. Don't be a victim. Don't live your life caught in the game of anger, lies, bitterness. Don't live your life yelling at the people that you love the most, fighting with your family, seeing life just from a temporary, selfish, prideful perspective. Live your life with eternal hope. Live your life with joy. Live your life with love, a contagious love that draws people to the cross rather than this bitter toxicity that some people frame as Christianity that pushes people away from our Lord. Live your life in the Spirit. Life is too short to be fighting all the time. Life is too short to be angry and bitter and tied up in knots and stressed out. Jesus says, love your enemies, do what is good, lend expecting nothing in return, and then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Most of the time we think about God being gracious to the ungrateful and evil as thinking that He's gracious to the people I don't like. If you really read the text, He's also talking about you. He's gracious to me even when I'm ungrateful, even whenever I walk in darkness. And so he says, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? The band will come and we'll have our invitation song and then our offering. and We'll have our final song. But before we leave this place, I want to encourage you just to spend a few moments here. Identify those conflicts in your life. And then ask God. Ask God to give you a godly perspective. To give you a love for people. To give you a generous heart. Ask God to drain the pride and the selfishness from you and instead to fill you with a godly grace and an understanding that each of us are sinners saved by grace. Grace is the greatest gift that you and I can ever receive. It's not meant to be hoarded. It's meant to be given as well. So maybe there's somebody in your life that you need to give some grace to, give some forgiveness to. Maybe there's some people in your life that you need to quit allowing you to tear you, tie you up in knots. Instead, you need to pray for them. Pray that God can change their heart. Perhaps we need to quit playing God, trying to change people that we don't like, and instead ask God to do what only God can do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its truth, even though sometimes that truth stings. It hits close to home. 
But I pray that you might shine the truth of your word today into the dark chambers of our heart, that we will change because of our encounter with you, that we will reflect you clearly, that we might extend your love to others. And I pray for relationships that might be strained in this room, that they will experience a beautiful healing that can only come from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.